This is The Guardian. We're good to go. Ready to hand over my phone. Here we go. Okay, phones are gone. Internet's being turned off. Ready to go. We don't have budget papers yet. We have 22 budget papers folder. They are floating I'm Laura Murphy-Oates and this is the full story. I'm in the Guardian's Sydney office in the budget locker. And today we're taking a look at the Albanese government's first budget. What's the message here? I think it's a budget where they're trying to start to turn the ship of state. So later I'll be speaking to Guardian Australia's editor-in-chief Lenore Taylor and our political editor Catherine Murphy and they'll discuss what this budget says about Labor's plan for the nation. But pretty much everything has conspired to make it a really tricky manoeuvre for them. But first, myself and a bunch of other Guardian journalists will be looking at the key policies in this budget. Do you want to tell me what day it is tomorrow? the 26th of October. Thank you. Appropriation Bill number 1, 2022-2023. I call the Treasurer. Yeah. Speak out from the Ngunnawal and Ngambri lands of Canberra to the Yuggera and Yugambeh lands of Logan and right around Australia. We acknowledge country and we commit to a voice for First Nations people. Yeah. On Tuesday, Treasurer Jim Chalmers delivered his first budget and the first Labor budget in nine years. Our Labor government's first budget does three things. It provides cost of living relief, which is responsible, not reckless, to make life easier for Australians without adding to inflation. It targets investments in a stronger, more resilient, more modern economy. And it begins the hard yards of budget repair. In a time where cost of living is hitting households hard, the government has unveiled a five-point plan for cost of living relief. This includes cheaper childcare for more than one million families, an expansion over the next four years of paid parental leave, bringing it from 20 weeks up to 26, essentially going up by two weeks every year nearly $800 million over four years to make medicines cheaper. There's also a range of housing policies and a new national housing accord that will bring together business with all levels of government to tackle the housing crisis. They hope this will deliver 1 million new homes for critical workers in key locations before 2030. Lastly, they're continuing their commitment to wage increases, but because of inflation and the general state of the economy, real wages aren't expected to grow again until 2024. Speaker, this is a solid and sensible budget suited to the conditions. Australians know that this is a time of great challenge and change. The budget also flags that tough times are ahead for our economy, much worse than the relatively rosy predictions made in the March budget. The global economy teeters again on the edge with a war that isn't ending, a global energy crisis that is escalating, inflationary pressures persisting and economies slowing, some, some of them already in reverse. Inflation is way up, GDP growth is expected to be much slower than we thought 
And according to economics columnist Greg Jericho, better known as Grogs, the message from the budget is that things could get worse from here. Well, it kind of means enjoy today, enjoy how things are going now, because tomorrow's going to be pretty bad. Next year, they're forecasting that growth is really going to slow down to 1.5%, which is not good. When it starts going down that low, that's when the risks of a recession really get high. Mm. And the budget is actually kind of optimistic. It's it's assuming that the rest of the world is not going to go into recession. But if it does, we're probably going to follow and growth is going to be pretty low. Unemployment will probably rise to 5% at the moment. They're hoping it'll only go up to about 4.5%. Hi, Peter. Oh, hi, Laura. So, Peter Hannum, you are The Guardian's economics correspondent. Groggs has just told me that we may or may not go into a recession over the next few years. What are the types of things that could tip us into a recession? What will you be looking out for? Okay, look, the two key things I'm interested in, that's households and China. So on the households front, you know, what people are spending on, whether it's, you know, fitting out their homes, you know, shopping more, etc., that's provided the growth uh, dynamo for the economy during the last year. Mm. But will they keep spending? We know that uh, electricity prices are going to be rising about 20% later this year and as much as another 30% uh, next fiscal year. That's going to dent uh, the demand on that front. Um, But also just talk about, um, uh, you know, recession or maybe slowing growth, higher unemployment. That could also uh, hurt some of the spending. Okay. What about China? So China is easily Australia's biggest trading partner. So um, China's growth is slowing. If it slows even more, we can expect commodity prices to tank, and that'll affect our um, budget coffers on the one hand, but also I think uh, the the wider confidence uh, of the economy from business investment and so on. So that's why I'll be watching China very closely. There's also quite a few funding announcements in Indigenous affairs, including more than $300 million for health, $75 million in initial funding for the Voice to Parliament referendum, and $6 million for a commission to start a truth-telling process, or Makarata, a key part of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Labor is also looking at how to set up real-time reporting of First Nations deaths in custody. Pivoting to infrastructure, Labor says they're cracking down on wastes and rorts from the previous government, with at least $9 billion of cuts, cuts that political reporter Paul Karp has been taking a closer look at. And the reason is, you know, Labor thinks it's unmeritorious spending. It's a series of boondoggles, uh, election commitments from before 2019 that they thought bought votes, uh, discretionary grants, uh, programs that they didn't think went to meritorious applicants, uh, dams in places they don't want to build dams, and billions and billions of dollars that they had to give to get the nationals to sign up to net zero emissions by 2050. Now to the environment. This budget redirects nearly $750 million in coalition commitments, including some spending on gas and carbon capture and storage, also known as CCS. After nearly 10 frustrating years and more than 20 failed energy policies, Australia now has a government that understands the generational and economic imperative of acting on climate change and a plan that provides stability to the energy grid 
instability to invest. It's also the first budget that includes a statement on how the climate crisis impacts the economy. And according to Environment Editor Adam Morton... Hello. This is a big shift. Labor has promised to make that a key part of the budget and each budget they're going to set out what the fiscal impact of climate change is and also detail what they're spending. So it's really putting climate change much closer to the heart of the budget than it ever has been before. And they're kind of assessing this risk in real time. They have a figure for how much the floods right now are going to affect GDP growth. Is that right, Adam? Yes, they have an estimate, an early estimate of what the current floods are going to do to both GDP and inflation. They're going to put growth in GDP in this quarter down a bit by a quarter of a percent and increase inflation by 0.1% in this quarter and the same again in the first quarter next year. So it's kind of a live reading of the impact of just one natural disaster that's been fuelled in part, we think, by rising emissions. So that's a really interesting change, and we certainly weren't seeing that under the coalition. I commend the budget and the bill to the House. Next, Lenore Taylor and Catherine Murphy break down the budget. Laura Murphy Oates here. If you're enjoying Full Story, I think you'll really like another podcast we make here at Guardian Australia called Book It In. On Book It In, some of Australia's favourite authors open up about the ideas behind their books in personal and thought-provoking conversations that you won't hear anywhere else. This season includes 2022 Miles Franklin winner Jennifer Down and Stella Prize winner Evelyn Araluen. You know, we are colonised through literature and our resistance to that, I think, has a capacity to be literary. We are not in a post-colonial society in Australia. The invaders are still here. They've never left. Subscribe to Book It In now on your favourite podcast player where you can hear the first episode of this new season out next week on Thursday, 3rd of November. Okay. Yeah, I'm good. Sorry. Good whenever you guys are good. All good. If you've pressed go, let's go. I have pressed go. So Murph and Lenore, welcome to the second budget of this year. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Laura. (laughs) Um, Labor says it's a cautious budget for hard times. What do you think they are trying to achieve with this budget? What's the message here? Um, I think it's a budget where they're trying to start to turn the ship of state and, and they do, they're making good on their election promises and that will do things, good things for many people's lives. And they're cutting previous government's priorities where they can and there was, you know, lots of stuff to cut. But pretty much everything has conspired to make it a really tricky manoeuvre for them. Mm. Um, inflation and the global circumstances mean they can't spend much because that's just going to make inflation worse. The geopolitical situation means they can't really do anything but continue on with the defence spending that, you know, is growing quite substantially. They didn't have much room to move. And I think in those circumstances, they're not doing anything surprising, they're not doing anything too ambitious, but they're showing us where they want to head in this term of government. We are in a cost of living crisis. How are they balancing being cautious with addressing this crisis? I guess they wanted to look alive to the fact that households are really 
hurting, but they mainly had to do that by labelling their election promises as cost of living measures because they really didn't have much capacity to do anything more that did, wouldn't then fuel, you know, go to fuel inflation. One thing they didn't talk about was that they were removing that low and middle income tax offset, which obviously makes people's lives more difficult. Mm. Um, so I didn't really see many surprises. I think they did as much as they could in the constrained circumstances that they were in. Do you agree with that, Murph? Well, I think uh, it was a budget deliberately of no surprises. I think uh, I mm. think that is the strategy, basically. Uh, I think in this opening phase of the new government, they're very collectively focused on uh, do do what you say you will do. If you are contemplating big things, unfold them before people slowly. Uh, you know, we had a we had a, a progressive election in the country that returned a progressive parliament, but I think. The new Albanese government wants its wants to sort of unfurl its own progressivism slowly. I think mm. uh, they have an objective, basically, of sort of that picture that Lenore gave you about the times are genuinely difficult to manage, right? The times are difficult and they are scary. If you read, uh, you know, budget paper number one that sort of lays out the various scenarios for the economy, you know, these are really difficult times for, for governments to manage. I think in that environment, the imperative of moving methodically but slowly and unfurling things in a in a measured way in terms of signposting what's ahead is part of their longevity strategy. Now, this may all go to poop in a matter of seconds, mm. um, but I think it is a very deliberate strategy mm. to, uh, to embed the progressivism of the government in a way that, that uh, persuades rather than polarises, if I can put it in that way. I agree with that, Murph, but I do think that if they weren't in these times, they might have been a teensy bit more daring. Oh, yeah. You know, they could have yeah. done a little bit more. Um, but, I, but I think, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And I think they are signalling where they want to unfold their progressivism, as you put it. You know, like Jim Chalmers was, is now signalling that the government is up for a discussion about tax reform because obviously there's this structural issue in the budget where the, the programs that we, we, we want, that, that we have, that we want, um, the spending that is factored in for them is not matched by the revenue that the government is getting. And that's, you know, that is a problem. They need to talk about it. You know, they let the stage three tax cut, you know, discussion have a bit of a role and then they pulled it back in. And I think they're signalling that, you know, they are up for this kind of discussion, but as Murph says, in a kind of methodical and controlled way. I mean, whether you can, in fact, control mm. a conversation about tax reform in this country is another whole question for another day. So they're starting conversations that might be continued in the mm. next budget, is mm. that fair to say? Which is, as we said, only six months away, you know. Mm. We are heading into very harsh economic times. Labor has some forecasts. They're hoping to avoid a recession. We're hoping that wages will grow from 2024. Are they being optimistic about how hard the next couple of years are going to be? Look, it is sort of per se optimistic to suggest wages will grow at a time when the economy is slowing down and unemployment is rising. I mean, these these things don't necessarily compute. Um, but in terms of what what they're sort of trying to do about painting the, the economic picture or telling people what's ahead, uh, I think 
The objective is to try and explain to people that, uh, look, there is a a danger, a quite acute danger of a hard landing in the advanced economies in Britain and the the US. Uh, If both of those economies go into recession, this will be the third significant downturn in 15 years. In the event that happens, uh, there will be ramifications for Australia. But I think what the government's trying to say to people is that our economic fundamentals and our budget fundamentals uh, are better than um, some of uh, those other economies. Therefore, there is a certain amount of insulation for us uh, from those global factors. But I think genuinely they are quite concerned. Mm. I think they're sort of walking this fine line between signalling, right, there is some scary stuff happening, playing out elsewhere, and if that plays out at the worst-case scenario, we will not be immune from the effects of that, while still trying to maintain optimism and confidence because domestic conditions, cost of living, inflation, high interest rates notwithstanding, are reasonably strong. So they're sort Mm -hmm. of trying to balance those two bits of storytelling you know, inoculate themselves if it's the worst case scenario so they can say to the voters, look, guys, we told you. I know it's not a great you know, thing to process, but we told you, while trying to sort of keep people at home focused on uh, the upside of, of of the next little bit. Yeah. Mm. In the lead up to budget night, there was a lot of discussion about how this could be a well-being budget, which for people who haven't heard of that term, it essentially means that we wouldn't just measure economic growth, but also the quality of life of our citizens. A few countries around the world have these these measures in their budget. Did we see that in this budget? Is this a well-being budget? Well, they're taking first steps to that, uh, To uh, again, as a sort of exercise in broadening the conversation about what matters and how you value it. Mm. The budget papers contain a discussion about some options for how you frame a wellbeing budget that I think that they will try and roll out in detail by the next budget in May. Uh, the other feature of this budget that was sort of interesting in terms of broadening the conversation, not brand new because we've had sort of gender-focused budgeting in the past, but the return of that element of of the budget, of the, of the explanation mm. of the budget. And in the in the press conference, uh, in the joint press conference between the Treasurer and the Finance Minister, a, a woman for the record, Katie Gallagher, who is running that gender element of the budgeting process, she was at pains really to hang a lantern over that and say, uh, you know, this is, this is really important to me, this is really important to the government, to try and sort of broaden the parameters about what we're talking about with a mm. view to assigning values to things that are not always assigned value yeah. and in, you know, in the best case scenario to try and do something about them. And reading through that women's budget, it you know, normally the women's budget when it was in there in years gone by was sort of looking at existing programs through a gender lens. But this one was talking about how for many of the big initiatives they've had, they they did gender impact assessments on policies. And, you know, it was it 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 looked serious mm. about it. Basically um, meaning they looked at different policies and tried to like figure an out environmental impact assessment. Yeah. The same same deal. Yeah. This budget is also the first to include a fiscal impacts of climate change statement. It's looking at the cost of climate change to our economy. Why did they do this? 
because if you... <laughs> oh, my God. Maybe that's a dumb question. You know, if you cut down a forest, that's not an economic gain. <laughs> the, the question really, I think, is why haven't they done it? Exactly. Given that people have been saying you need to do it since the 1990s. What will this shift, though, in terms of the conversation around climate change? How does this help the government with their agenda on climate change, having well, this in the budget? It brings the costs into the equation as alongside, you know, the, the costs of not doing things into the equation alongside the costs of transitioning the economy. Um, this might seem logical and obvious to us, but it hasn't always been logical and obvious in the Australian political debate. Mm. And I think spelling it out and pointing it, pointing it out in the budget will actually, you know, bring the conversation to a more realistic point. It aligns the Treasury work with work being undertaken or has continued to be undertaken by regulators, uh, even during the sort of uh, darkest hours of the last 10 years. Um, the corporate regulator and others, there's been this whole sort of building up in the global capital space and regulatory space around carbon risk. That has happened while the Australian Parliament twiddled its thumbs and uh, the coalition sort of pretended that climate change wasn't real and we didn't really have to do anything terribly much about it, there has been this massive shift in the way regulators and global capital uh, conceive of climate risk and uh, putting it in the budget papers creates an alignment between the way the government is talking about it, budgeting it, thinking about it, and the way the rest of the world, apart from, uh, sadly, the Liberal and National Parties in Australia, are, you know, coming to terms with this issue. There's also a really wide range of Indigenous Affairs funding. There's $75 million for the referendum, for The Voice. There's also $6 million for a Makarata Commission, which would kind of oversee treaty processes, truth-telling processes in general. I mean, what did we learn about how Labor is planning to implement the Uluru Statement from the heart, one of their you know, biggest agenda items in this term? I think we learnt, well, they're going to fund the referendum and the process. They have to do that. The yes case uh, has obviously applied for tax deductibility for DGR status and, and got that. And there was some money for the Makarata process, which I guess is making good on their promises to other parties to sort of run the voice treaty truth processes simultaneously. So I think it was a bit of a down payment on what is clearly one of the Prime Minister's priorities for this term. Right. The Greens, including Senator Lydia Thorpe, are pushing for action on other key elements of mm. the Uluru Statement, treaty and truth, alongside this, mm. this kind of voice process. Do you think that this will be well received in Canberra, especially by the Greens, this Makarata funding? We'll see how it's received. I think it's certainly conceived with an eye to uh, sort of running, running the voice campaign and aligning the forces who should be out there campaigning mm. for the S case, basically, mm. uh, rather than having people stubbing their toes on the timing of various things. Labor's position has been to support all elements of the Uluru mm. Statement. It's just a question of, of sequencing. Yeah. This sort of funding announcement obviously gives them something to point to to the extent that, you know, look, we're, we 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 mean good faith. A bona fide. We, yeah, you know, we, we've taken a decision about about sequencing, which reflects our political assessment mm. of how this is going to run and play, but we haven't forgotten those other elements of the Uluru Statement. So, and just if I could do a little 
um, small brag or, you know, hat tip, I think that I re was really gratified to see the government talking about trying to get some sort of real-time reporting of deaths in custody. Mm. I think the work that um, you, Laura, and Lorena and other people at Guardian Australia has done on that has really elevated the issue and the fact that we just didn't have the data and we didn't know what was happening and I, I was really pleased to see that. No, being able to see what's happening in every state and territory yeah. guests in custody in real time will be a big would, relief would for a lot be of amazing. families. Yeah. Yeah. As you've said, Labor wants to signal that they're charting a, a cautious path through really tough times, they're the right people to do it. Does this budget do everything that Labor wants it to do? How do you think it's going to be received? Hmm. Um, I think... I, I think it will probably be seen as a down payment on next May, actually. It's kind of the first step. It's doing what they said they would do. It's getting going on the things that they can get going on now. Um, I think a lot of uh, progressive voters in Australia would want to see them do a lot more than this, but I think they've signalled enough in lots of policies. I mean, there was a really interesting policy in this budget about housing. And, you know, um, there's clearly a housing crisis. If they had done, if they'd done nothing, if there hadn't been anything for people who are really struggling or, you know, finding themselves homeless or, you know, not keeping up with their mortgage payments or not being able to find any kind of accommodation, that would have been seen as, you know, a real failing of a Labor government. Now, what they've done is is relatively modest, but it's trying to find a way to get more investment into housing supply and particularly into affordable housing. So I think they've done, I guess, I guess what I'm saying is I think they've made a down payment in enough areas that I think people will see it as a reasonable start. Murph and Lenore, thank you so much. Thanks, Laura. Thank you, Laura. That was Guardian Australia's editor, Lenore Taylor, and political editor, Catherine Murphy. Earlier, you heard from Greg Jericho, Peter Hannum, Paul Karp, and Adam Morton. You can read all of their reporting and all of The Guardian's budget coverage at theguardian.com right now, including an interactive where you can build your own budget as well. This episode was produced by Joe Koning, who also did the sound design and mixing. The executive producers of Full Story are Miles Matnioni, Gabrielle Jackson, Molly Glassie, and me. Okay, catch you tomorrow.